Welcome to the Disability Sport Info Show, the podcast that explores academic knowledge about disability sport. My name is Dr. Chris Brown, and I'm an academic with an expertise in disability sport. Each episode, I focus on a specific topic of disability sport and speak to academic experts to understand the area in more depth. So join me and listen to the Disability Sport Info Show to get an expert view on disability sport. Hello, listener. Welcome to the show. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Brett Smith of Durham University, who will discuss the physical activity and sport participation of disabled children and young people. In our chat, we focus on the latest Chief Medical Officer's Physical Activity Guidelines for Disabled Children and Young People. Brett was a leading researcher involved in creating the guidelines, providing an insider's perspective of the process and evidence that informed the making of the guidelines. I caught up with Brett to discuss this area in more depth. So I think we need to kick off the discussion so our listeners can get a broad understanding. To what extent do disabled children and young people participate in sport and physical activity? I think that's a really interesting question because it depends upon at least at least two factors. Uh, one is uh, which data are we going to use to answer that question? Uh, and the second one is let's look at the quality of that data to then be able to answer it with some tentative conclusions. If we start with the which question in terms of the extent, when you look at the data, what's really interesting is you get some data from certain organisations and in different countries saying, actually, to what extent uh, in terms of physical activity and when we have a comparative approach between uh, disabled children and non-disabled children, we see very uh, similar patterns. Not huge levels of physical activity, of course, because we know there are issues there, but we see similar patterns. On the other hand, when you look at other data, you see the disparities uh, there. You see, for example, uh, certain impairment groups in particular with uh, much, much less uh, types uh, types of physical activity engagement. So it really does depend upon uh, which data you utilise to be able to answer that question. So if anybody poses the question, are disabled children less active than non-disabled children, it's actually... Uh, a very challenging question to be able to say yes or no on that front. And part of that revolves around the second uh, issue in terms of the quality of data. When we look at the quality of data, most of it is self-reported. Now, we know that's not as accurate as, for example, accelerometer data or Fitbit data on that front. And then, of course, when we throw in other issues in relation to disability, such as complex disabilities, intellectual and learning, then that throws up a whole set of conundrums about how well uh, the self-reported data can be utilised. Because, of course, we know that we've got memory issues, and particularly with children, uh, we've got assumptions about what counts as physical activity and what doesn't count as physical activity if parents are filling them in and so on. So when we look at the data and the surveillance data in particular, it's not great is the long and short of it uh, on that front. All that said, if somebody put a gun to my head uh, and said, uh, are disabled children less active uh, than non-disabled children? In my experiences, the answer would be yes. But do we have the evidence base to say that? Uh, the answer is uh, equivocal uh, at the best on that front. And it's certainly something that we really do need to progress upon quite considerably for lots of different reasons, lots of different reasons. But when we look at COVID and the health disparities that have arisen as a result of that, well, 
enlarged, should we say, because they've always been there. That's what worries me. If we can capture that data that, for example, if children are less active than non-disabled children, then we can make that even more of a priority. But that data alone, and this is what frustrates me about researchers, when we just collect that data, that's not good enough. Uh, and in many respects, that should just be the starting point of an article, one line. Uh, and then we need to move on to the question, how could we make things better? How could we make things better? There's too much emphasis just simply, simply on that data collection. But we do need to improve it. Interesting. Yeah, I think it's a really good distinction that you made about the availability of data and then the quality of data. And I'm just wondering if you know, because I'm not sure about if the quality of data exists here, but what's the picture globally? Like if we... I think traditionally a lot of research has probably been Western in focus. I think that's probably a fair comment to make. So how much knowledge do we have when we're looking at globally participation in sport and physical activity? Well, that's, again, a challenging question. It's challenging because when we look at, for example, uh, what's revolving around the anti-colonialism of science. Now, I can't read, for example, different languages, say different forms of South African languages. When we look at uh, even uh, Western countries like Spain, I can't read uh, the data that's been published in their languages. So when, as a researcher, when we make these broad claims about global uh, work, we're often just relying upon English language only. Uh, and of course, we can't no longer do that. We must do better to be able to make these claims. We must work better and we must engage better with other languages so that we can answer these types of questions. But when we do look at the English-speaking language, uh, we find, again, a similar pattern. There's actually very little data going on in these types of countries. And when we do find uh, that that data in and of itself, of course, we end up with some similar evidence to, for example, the UK, we find some evidence that it's similar patterns to non-disabled children. And equally, we find uh, evidence saying that non-disabled, uh, that disabled children have lower levels of physical activity than disabled children uh, of course. But of course, when we move into those different countries, that's when the health disparities start amplifying even greater, even greater. So when I'm working, for example, with my South African colleagues, um, and when you go out into the communities there, the visibility of the health disparities is shocking, absolutely shocking uh, there. So, you know, we really, we really do need to work much better on, on the ground uh, in terms of these communities and enabling our science to do much better uh, and particularly from a non uh, in terms of the anti-colonialism as well that's a necessity and of course don't forget listeners there's a difference between anti-colonialism and decolonization which too many universities talk about decolonization but that's just about land uh, hence why many universities do get it wrong again thank you thank you for that distinction and i think that's just kind of really highlighting the need to have that collaboration and that kind of uh common idea of what is quality data and how best to collect the data as well. So if we could just move to more of a UK focus for the time being, I know you've been involved in the Chief Medical Officer's kind of guidelines for physical activity for disabled children and young people. So would you be able to let our listeners know what the current guidelines are and how they were developed and informed, what evidence was used? Yeah, I, I think the evidence is, is an important question, which I'll come back to. But I think firstly, it's important to note that these are the first UK Chief Medical Officers guidelines for disabled children and disabled young people. There's been a gap in that evidence base up until uh, this, this month, in fact, where they were just been launched on the 16th of February. Uh, alongside those uh, guidelines, we have an infographic to communicate them that was co-produced and an, an animation as well that was co-produced. I think it's also important to 
stress that these are public health guidelines. People often criticize public health guidelines based upon clinical ideas, when of course the two are very different and they conflate the two. So it first needs to be stressed that these are public health guidelines, not clinical guidelines on that front. And the same with the adult guidelines as well. Well, last year, the chief medical officers tasked uh, myself and the team at Durham University, and I want to uh, highlight Ben Rigby here, who is a fundamental part of this team, who led the uh, review of evidence, and my also colleague from Bristol, uh, Professor Charlie Foster, on that front. We were tasked with answering three questions as part of the review. Is physical activity safe? Uh, what are the health benefits? And when we look at the fit principles as well, for example, you know, the intensity and the time, how much is needed to be uh, uh, how much physical activity is needed for good health? We were tasked with that question, with those three questions. We did a review of the evidence and we found, I think, 476. Uh, studies that were included at the end, having gone through the review uh, synthesis process. So we re reviewed this evidence and what did we really find from this? Well, firstly, there was a reasonably large quantity of good quality evidence when, of course, we think quality evidence means a randomized control trial. On that front, of course, we can debate whether that is high quality evidence for disability and when we look at other parts of how we want to do research. But nonetheless, that was the high quality evidence that we found. Well, what did this tell us in terms of those three questions? One, we found no evidence that physical activity is unsafe or harmful when done appropriately, of course, when done appropriately on that front. Secondly, we found some health benefits, which I can come back to if that's of interest. But I think uh, what we found fascinating was the results of the uh, looking at the fit in terms of the, uh, the frequency and the intensity and the time and the types of physical activity. When we, of course, reviewed the evidence, we'd had the World Health Organization guidelines for disabled children and disabled young people in front of me. We dissected those. And those, had, uh, those guidelines recommended 60 minutes of physical activity per day for uh, good health. When we looked at the evidence, we found no evidence for 60 minutes whatsoever. Now, what we found was it was 20 minutes of physical activity approximately per day, or uh, we also found evidence for 120 minutes uh, to 180 minutes per week. So we found this dual evidence there, which I can come back to as well in terms of what the children preferred in terms of communication. Now, what we're not saying is that the World Health Organization's guidance is invalid. What we are stressing is several things. Number one, ours is evidence-based. The World Health Organization made their recommendations based upon very limited evidence, if evidence at all. And they also adopted a very different methodology uh, than what we did on that front. Nonetheless, uh, the chief medical officers have accepted uh, the recommendations, they've accepted the evidence. So what it is, is 20 minutes of physical activity a day is good for your health. At the same time, of course, and I say 20 minutes because when we did the co-production uh, afterwards in relation to how we want to communicate these messages, we asked the questions, does 20 minutes uh, work for you? Is 120 minutes, 180 minutes a weekly message work for you? All the children, we uh, worked with 233 disabled children and young people and parents, carers, and some health and social care professionals. All of them, by and large, uh, preferred the 20-minute message. It was more motivating, more easily achievable, and more memorable for those, uh, for those individuals. 
But it's also important to stress two things. We also identified that uh, it's important to do challenging but manageable strength and balance activities three times a week. That's really important, of course, for children with cerebral palsy as just one example. Uh, And we also found evidence for that small amounts of physical activity are good for health. And that's a really important message, I think, as well. But what was really smart with the children in the co-production group, they're incredibly smart and nuanced in their finessing of the messages. And if I'm to give you just one example of this, we're also in the evidence base looking at sedentary behavior. Uh, what's the impact of sedentary behavior on children? And also about the evidence of small amounts of physical activity as well. So there's this dual component to it how to break up sedentary behavior and small but frequent amounts of physical activity. And when we were discussing this with the children, we were throwing uh, words out from the academic literature and there's a big emphasis now on snacking, for example. Every child, every young person and every family member hated words associated with snacking. What they preferred was this do bite-sized chunks of physical activity throughout the day to communicate that message. That, for me, highlighted the significance of co-production. In other words, rather than a researcher waltzing in there and producing messages that they believe are appropriate, uh, usable, meaningful for a population, it's actually we've got to work with this population so that they themselves create messages that are appropriate and meaningful and usable and useful for them. And they created uh, that message. And when I asked the question, why is it progressed? Why bite-sized chunks? I just didn't get my head around it, despite having an eight-year-old son. And they kept coming back to the obvious points. Brett, this is how BBC works, you know, social media. (laughs) This is how the TV, uh, this is how we're taught at school, bite-sized. So it was meaning culturally meaningful and relevant for them, at least within the UK context. But these are UK guidelines, of course. And I think what was also important in terms of the story that they told about this, they highlighted the significance, of course, of fun and uh, exploring what makes you feel good. Those two, uh, as well as inclusivity and equality, were really important for them to stress when we're producing the Chief Medical Officer's guidelines. Because, of course, too much public health focuses upon the health benefits uh, and how much physical activity. Now, we're not cognitive drones. We don't just absorb this information and then just do it. If something isn't fun, if something isn't pleasurable, and if something isn't inclusive, we're not going to get those benefits. We're not going to do those 20 minutes or small amounts of physical activity. So they kept stressing to us, we need finding what's fun. We need exploring what makes you feel good at the heart of all chief medical officers' guidelines and the communication of them for disabled children and disabled young people. Well, very interesting um, discussion. There's lots and lots of things I'd love to talk about. We are limited by time, so I can't talk about everything. But I think the point you made about the co-design is fundamental and essential. And I think that's kind of shining through in lots of discussions I'm having about the importance of co-design rather than imposing beliefs upon a particular population group. A really interesting anecdote about the bite-sized chunks. It was really interesting to learn. I just want to go back to when you're talking about how when you're answering some of those questions that you were tasked with, one of them was about, is physical activity safe? And you said, yep, the evidence is very clear, it's safe. When you were looking at the evidence, was that evidence informed with a wide variety of impairment categories and types? Because disability is a very complex, diverse group. It's a catch-all term, which belies the individuality of the lived experience, etc. So yeah, what was was your experience when you were looking at the evidence? What 
kind of data was collected on impairment types and categories? Yeah, we have to be careful of how we communicate this. And in the report itself, we were very, very careful to highlight that we didn't find evidence to say that physical activity is not safe, is harmful. That was the first point. Now, of course, we had a preponderance of evidence around certain impairment groups and a lack of evidence uh, around other impairment groups. So in the report itself, we're very cautious about certain groups and particularly, uh, you know, we still got the issues to do with COVID uh, and how that will impact upon people. So we did say, for example, uh, certain impairment groups we should then still, for example, uh, engage with health professionals if we if they think it's going to be unsafe on that front. That said, I think two points are really worth stressing. One was that when we spoke with the children uh, and the parents, they were very, very keen for us not to communicate messages that utilise the words health and safety in there. They didn't want to be deemed another example of a health and safety risk. They were very, again, very smart, very creative in how they termed this message. And what they did uh, was created the a traditional message, which is when starting build up slowly, which of course, uh, for certain impairment groups is really important, and particularly if you're not that active from the very beginning. But what they also posed was this question, and that's in the infographic and on the animation. And it was ask, can you do this today? And that was a really smart uh, form of messaging for two reasons. And the different uh, children got it, either both of the reasons or at least one of the reasons. One was, well, ask, can you do this today? I'm an expert of my own body, Brett. I know whether I can be physically active today or whether it's a really bad day for me. And therefore, I'm not going to be that physically active. So I can ask myself that question daily. Secondly, also don't assume as a professional that you know what's best for me. So you ask me what's best today, whether that's a PE teacher, for example, a coach and whatsoever. And for them, that was a really important way of messaging and managing the issues to do with risk, health and safety on that. Mm, really interesting. Yeah. And again, really important, you know, actually speak to the participant. The participant is the expert on themselves, like you said, obviously provide the guidelines and frameworks, but ultimately it's the individual who needs to be empowered to kind of take that message on. You touched upon some of the, the health benefits. Obviously, we wouldn't be promoting it purely via the health angle, of course. But what are kind of the benefits of participating in sport and being physically active? I think we could throw numerous benefits out there that we think would be in the evidence base, uh, such as, for example, mental health benefits and meeting new friends. Well, when we look at the quantitative evidence base, we see rarely any strong evidence of that, sadly. However, when we look at the qualitative evidence base and when we spoke with the children themselves during the co-production process, they highlighted the absolute importance, number one, making new friends and meeting new people. That to them was the most significant thing. Many of the children talked about the benefits of mental health. Many of them talked about it keeps me calmer and helps me feel less stressed. And also they talked about a sense of achievement. 
And many of the parents backed that up uh, when children had come from sports or physical activity events. But the evidence itself, what we found uh, was that it improves confidence, concentration. It also improves balance and coordination and also muscles and motor skills. That was the evidence, uh, what the evidence was telling us. But of course, in the infographics and communicating it in the animation as well, we highlighted all of those. And I think what was really interesting from how the children talked about it and some of the parents was that the benefits can't be looked at in terms of a one-shot approach. And what they meant by that was just because you do physical activity on X day, you're going to get these benefits. They talked about it in terms of a lifelong approach, uh, a life course approach in many ways, in terms of, for example, yeah, uh, today, what's more important for me is meeting new people. But in a year's time, when I'm entering those exams, feeling calmer and less stressed is going to be really important. And of course, as I grow up, balance and coordination muscles are going to be absolutely crucial uh, for me. So they looked at it in really uh, smart and clever way as well. And I think we've got to focus much upon, uh, you know, a life course approach, which we talk about, but I don't think we do as well as we could do. I'm just conscious when we're talking about disabled children and young people, we're kind of, again, just kind of lumping them in one group, but was there any differences in terms of the evidence base and also the recommendations for those who have acquired an impairment versus those who've got a congenital impairment? Yeah, that's a good question. We do highlight the limited evidence in certain uh, impairment groups in the report itself. And I think, again, this is a this is a type of common question we get when people have a much more clinically orientated question in their head. And that's why I stressed at the very beginning, this is a public health, it's a population-based uh, report and a population-based forms of communication. When we move into the clinical orientated, those are the types of questions that were more interested in and again in the report we do touch upon that and there are there are some there's stronger evidence for certain impairment groups than other impairment groups so for example there was a lot of evidence in relation to self-palsy uh, intellectual and learning but very little evidence uh, for example in terms of visually impaired uh, in terms of the quantitative evidence, for example, on that front. So in the report itself, we do stress this limited evidence and we do talk about we must be much more cautious, particularly when we're at the individual level and particularly when we're off uh, moving into a more of a clinical health uh, health professional space, that these differences and nuances do need uh, to be focused upon. But hence why I come back to my other point, which the children said, is ask, can you do this today? Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. Yeah, uh, so again, a really important point worth uh, emphasising there. Looking at it kind of population-wide, um, what challenges exist in providing sport participation or physical activity for disabled children and young people, in your opinion? We could be here for, uh, for hours. Uh, so I'll just focus briefly on three. Cost, uh, one. Uh, inclusive environments, these are still lacking uh, despite the rhetoric. And those are not, of course, just about the physicality, i.e. ramps and accessible buildings. This is also about psycho-emotional disabilism, for example, and ableism. So ableism like messages, sit less, stand more, get Britain standing. Those ableist messages and the psycho-emotional disabilism, for example, in terms of Carol Thomas's work, in terms of just one example in terms of children being stared at in environments uh, and then they're made to feel awkward uh, and less of value. So I think those two uh, certainly cost and inclusive environments. And I think also there's a lack of high quality 
physical activity and sports. And by high quality, we can talk in many different ways, but there's some interesting research that I've talked about it in terms of having high quality environments, in terms of providing choice, uh, how many disabled children get a choice in comparison to non-disabled, probably much less choice, a sense of belonging in terms of uh, being respected and accepted in groups, challenge, how often do we find uh, sporting and physical activity environments that are appropriately challenging for people? And competence, a sense of meaning uh, as well. So those are some of the really big challenges for us uh, to developing cost-effective, inclusive, high-quality environments. We need to do much better. I think finally, I'm interested in knowing about promotion of these opportunities because often, well, from my readings and maybe some of the listeners' readings, some of the barriers could be actually awareness of opportunities um, and just lack of knowledge and uh, accessible information. So I'm wondering if you could ask this in two stages, if I could be so bold. What would be your kind of best practice recommendations for promotion of activities, but then also what happens in practice currently? And is there a difference or it'll be kind of aligning to both of those approaches? So what strategies are used to promote physical activity and support participation? Challenging question. I think the Chief Medical Officer's guidelines is a first and small uh, metaphorical step. Of course, Chief Medical Officer's guidelines won't change behaviour in and of themselves, and the infographics and animation in and of themselves won't. However, we do believe, and we are already seeing, uh, having worked with numerous schools, it is starting to raise awareness. It is starting to put it on uh, the agenda on that front. And I think there's other ways in terms of best practice. Uh, you know, we've seen some sports organisations uh, in terms of developing coaching much better coaching systems for disabled children and disabled uh, young people. We're seeing small pockets, and I stress small pockets, of opportunities in summer schools as well uh, for disabled children and disabled young uh, people in terms of that. And I think the visibility of disability is slightly increasing at certain moments in time, notably around, of course, the Paralympics, where we have a mad rush of visibility. But of course, when we look at it in practice, uh, all this diminishes considerably when we get to uh, the community-based uh, grassroots physical activity and sport on that front. You know, how many, uh, how, what is the visibility of disabled children and disabled young people in in the different settings? Very, lo- very low, very limited. Is the high quality coaching there? Is the high quality coaching uh, done by disabled people themselves? Rarely, no. So I think on the one hand, we're making inroads and strong inroads in relation to policy and practice at the academic and policy level, but filtering that to the ground level is still a challenge. We've got a long, long way to go. Uh, I would say that we've started the academic and policy challenge uh, of the last few years. But in terms of getting it on the ground, we've still got a long, long way to go on that front. Okay. Well, thank you, Brett. Some fascinating insights, fascinating discussions. And I, again, really do appreciate you taking the time to have a chat and to share your expertise on this area. Been really interesting to learn more about disabled children and young people. Hopefully you listener have also enjoyed that and also learned some new information and some new knowledge. So thank you, Brett. Be great to catch up soon and thank you for being on the show thank you very much take care everybody bye-bye that's it that's the end of the show thank you for listening stay tuned for another episode of the disability support info show until then goodbye you've been listening to the disability sport info show 
academic insights into disability sport.